Good morning. So good to have you with us this morning. Hey, before we get started, I want to introduce you to somebody. We have been talking about hiring, not them. We've been talking about hiring a university minister, and we have a candidate and his wife that are with us this weekend. David and Kiev, would you stand up? Is that okay? Is that embarrassing? <laughs> so this is a David and Kia Lopez. If you get a chance after services, say hi to them, just greet them. Thank you guys. They have twin 14-month-old boys, Cohen and Keegan. They are in uh, the nursery, and you'll want to see them too. They are adorable. And they have been staying with us this weekend, and uh, I learned yesterday that there's a reason why young people have children, you know? And uh, they are adorable, though. Love them. Uh, so get a chance, meet David and Kia. I do want to say this. I don't, I don't like David for this position simply because he played for the Razorbacks, okay? So let me just say that. That helped him, but that, yeah, that, that helps, but that's not the only reason. So thank you for being here this morning. Now, Levi. Anybody recognize these two characters? Anybody recall what was going on in this scene? Yeah? For decades... Lucy would hold the football for Charlie Brown and Charlie Brown would run up as if he was going to kick it and right before he kicked it, Lucy would pull the ball away, sending Charlie Brown flying in the air, ending up on his back looking like a fool. Lucy first pulled this stunt on November the 16th, 1952 and she continued some variant of this all the way up to 1999. Just before Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip, just before he retired, he realized that Charlie Brown had never kicked the ball, never succeeded. And he thought about changing that before he retired, but he said, I think that would be a disservice to his character. And you think, well, why would that be? Well, because he says Charlie Brown represents every man. Every man. And by Charlie Brown... Falling for this every time means one of two things. Either, either he's somebody who doesn't learn from his past or he's somebody who has hope for the future. That's us, my friends. We are people who have hope for the future, right? And maybe some around us think we have great audacity or ignorance to believe in something so great and so hope-filled, but we are a people of hope. And what we see in the book of Isaiah, as well as the minor prophets that we're talking about on Wednesday nights, and really throughout all of the Old Testament, what we see is God's people dealing with exile and punishment and judgment, mostly because of their own unfaithfulness, but we see them always with a ray of hope. God providing a door of hope. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, But there will be no more gloom. For her who was in anguish in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they shall be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. 
For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Any of you use Bible Gateway? I really like Bible Gateway. It's a great tool. What I like about Bible Gateway, and Jim, maybe you're the same way, is I can copy and paste passages into my notes or into my PowerPoint So that's a great time saver. Anytime you see a scripture on the screen and maybe the punctuation doesn't seem right or anything, don't blame me. I just copied and pasted it out of Bible Gateway, okay? So if one of the neat tricks about Bible Gateway is you can type in in the search bar a word that you're looking for and it will bring up like a concordance all the passages that that word is found in. So if I were to type in hope, this is at least some of the results that it brings up. Not all of them, but that's some of them. So let's say that I look at Ruth chapter 1 verse 12. You notice that underneath Ruth chapter 1 verse 12, it provides me some options. You have in context, you have full chapter, and you have other translations. Let's say that I click on in context, and here's what it brings up. You notice that? In context is the verse before it and the verse after it. Is that what in context is? No, not at all. If we're looking at a verse in context, and I'm sorry I keep harping on this, but it's important. If, we keep, if we're looking at a verse in context, what are we really looking at? We're looking at everything that's going on around that verse, right? If you want a fuller context of a verse, you don't just read what's before it and what's after it. You read the whole chapter, right? So if I want to get a greater context of Ruth chapter 1, verse 12, I need to read Ruth chapter 1. If I want an even better context than that, you know what I do? I read all of Ruth at one sitting. Now, if we're talking about Philemon, that's easy, right? If we're talking about Psalm 119 or if we're talking about Isaiah, that's a little bit more difficult. That's a big chunk of your day, right? But if we want to understand context, we've got to read everything that's going on around it. We've got to look at that 30,000-foot view and see what it is that God is trying to say, reading bigger chunks. And like we discussed last week, Isaiah is prophesying during the time of exile when the northern kingdom was destroyed and Israel was carried away into captivity by the Assyrians. During this time, Judah is under threat as well. The southern kingdom is going to be held captive by the Babylonians. And so Isaiah is prophesying during this time and the theme of exile or driven out to the east is a very common theme, not just here but throughout Scripture. We first see it in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve were driven out to the east, out of the garden. So that's a common theme. God is speaking through Isaiah, making it clear that all injustice is going to be punished. The oppressed will be set free, and the oppressors will be punished. Just because he uses Assyria and Babylon to carry out his will against his people doesn't mean that they're going to get off lightly. No, in fact, they're going to bear punishment There will be recompense for their wickedness. However, Israel does seem to bear the bigger brunt in a lot of this, more so than Judah anyway. 
And so God is speaking through Isaiah a message of redemption and renewal that follows a message of judgment, of captivity. There's always a door of hope. God provides this door of hope, this silver lining, right? He's going to swallow up death forever. That's Isaiah 25, verses 7 through 8. God, through his people, is executing a plan to bring humanity back from exile and give them the land of inheritance where there would be no more death. And how is this going to happen? Well, the answer is through a baby. Like we talked about last week, God is going to present a sign to Ahaz. He asked Ahaz to ask for a sign, but Ahaz refused. And God's like, well, I don't need you anyway. I'll give you a sign, and that sign is going to be a baby. It's not the child Jesus, although there are definitely some similarities, perhaps even a dualistic prophecy here. But notice what we read last week, Isaiah 7, 14 through 16. It says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So there seems to be some dualistic prophecy here. Ahaz represents the house of David, but the fact that you, while you here, is plural, indicates that this is a sign not only for Ahaz, but for all kings who will ascend to the throne and rule over Judah. So this obviously is pointing to Jesus, right? Not so fast. I think we can see some similarities, but there is a big hint here, a big clue given to us, and that is that the child that's going to be born, the two kings that Ahaz dreads, will be deserted before this child even knows how to refuse evil and choose good. So this is not something that's going to happen some 700 years in the future with Jesus. This is going to happen very soon. Before, before the child can choose good and refuse evil, this is going to occur. Okay. So the point of this sign from the Lord is to show that Ahaz's fear is misplaced. God is going to destroy the two nations that oppose Judah before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good. And along with this, Isaiah is pointing out that the lineage of David is going to remain intact. We talked about that last week, is how there was a threat to the throne of David. No, there really wasn't a threat. God's not going to let that happen. God established a covenant with David. He's not going to let some earthly nation destroy what he had planned out. So we look at chapter 8 now, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as the people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remalia, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates." even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what is happening here? Again, if we're reading bigger chunks and trying to gain context, 
What is happening is that God is going to break the alliance between Syria and Israel, and he's going to do that through the nation of Assyria. Notice the name of the son that was to be born. This son that was to be assigned, notice his name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, like we talked about last week. Those of you who want to name your child a biblical name, how about this one? Meher Shalal Hashbaz, you can actually just call him Baz, right? And so the name means victory. The spoil speeds, the prayed hastens. Names always mean something in the Bible. In fact, they're often attached to your destiny. And here, the name simply means victory. Victory of Assyria over Israel and Syria. It's also a sign that Ahaz should have trusted in God and not his own plan. Notice verse 8 again. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Assyria is coming to flood the nation of Judah like a river that has busted through its banks, its levee. The land will be filled with an invading army. But take a look at verses 9 and 10. Be broken, O peoples. And be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. In other words, there is hope on the horizon. A door of hope has been opened. The counsel of the wicked will come to nothing. And do you know why? For God is with us. We often think of Jesus as the Emmanuel, and we should. But the people of Jesus, the people of God are the Emmanuel. God is with them. Therefore, they are the Emmanuel as well. No enemy can triumph over them. And what was true in Isaiah's time is every bit as much true today. The story of God's people is our story. Israel's story is our story. The hope that they were promised is the hope that we have. King Ahaz and Judah's hope came through a baby, and our hope comes through a baby as well. Chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. To who? To us. To Israel, yes, but we are most definitely the us as well for a child has been given to us but not just any child the child is the king of kings the lord of lords and and you know a king would not be worth his salt if he couldn't do something about bringing peace and prosperity to his kingdom that's how we judge a king right if i were to ask you how do you judge the success of a king well you would say something like well he protects his loyal citizens i mean a king is not going to be considered very worthy if he doesn't remove all signs of rebellion, if he doesn't protect the citizens, if he doesn't bring peace and prosperity over the nation he rules over. So our king's reputation is on the line. And God has promised his people that every authority, every force, every individual, every spirit that is in rebellion to him will be judged. The promised Messiah was to be the means by which God, our king, would bring peace and prosperity. Isaiah stated as much in chapter 11, verse 6, when he wrote, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. The king will bring peace through a prince. A prince who will destroy the enemies. Those who continue to rebel against God and His will and His rule and His reign. Who are these enemies that are going to be destroyed? Well, Scripture tells us the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Those who do not obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. And then, of course, death. 
1 Corinthians 15, 26. The final enemy, you see, is not a who, but a what. It's death. And Revelation 20 and verse 14 tells us that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. And Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, a beautiful chapter about our hope. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. David can appreciate this, being a defensive back. Paul is like that defensive back that lays out the wide receiver and stands over him and taunts him. That's what Paul's doing to death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Get up. What can you do to me? And he has no reply. Death does not win. Death cannot win. It may look like it's winning. Every time you see a funeral procession, it may look like death is winning. Every time you go to a funeral, every time you weep at an open grave, it can seem like death is winning, but death does not win. It can't win because our king has spoken. And not only has he spoken, he's delivered. Some of you may be thinking, okay, Chris, all that sounds fine and good, but there's a passage where Jesus says something like, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Remember that? And you're right, he did say that. But understand that when Jesus said those words, he's not talking about the purpose for his coming. He's talking about the effect of his coming, right? Jesus didn't come to bring a sword and disrupt peace. He came for quite the opposite. But his coming guaranteed that households would be in disharmony, that those who followed him would face persecution, that the government would stand against him, all those kind of things. His coming brought persecution. Still does today for some. So when Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but a sword, what he's saying is, I didn't come for the purpose of disrupting all this, but my coming does that. Because when you choose me, you choose something that is so different from the world around you that some aren't going to buy in, and in fact, they're going to punish you for it. I was reading a story the other day. Actually, I always say the other day. It wasn't the other day. Um, it's a while ago. It came up in my news feed, and I saved it. So I thought I might use that for a sermon illustration at some point. Well, here it is. Um, there was this, this guy in Philadelphia that was hanging Christmas lights on the exterior of his home. And while he was just minding his own business, hanging Christmas lights, his ex-girlfriend pulls up in her car and starts doing donuts in his yard and tries to run over him, all the while blasting Christmas carols from the car radio and shouting Merry Christmas. She tears up all of his Christmas decorations. She even barrels into the house. And the headline on the news release just simply read, So much for peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We all want peace, don't we? But we all seem to live in a place where peace is so elusive. We live in a world where peace seems so out of touch for so many. We all want peace. I think every Miss America contestant ever has said, what do you want? I want world peace, right? But it's so elusive, we cannot find it. Is it even possible? And to you, I would say, yes, absolutely it's possible. Maybe not in our world, maybe not on this earth, but it's definitely possible within you. In fact, it's something that we should all be striving for. For the Jew, like Jesus, peace has a very deep, rich meaning. If you were to visit Israel, you would be greeted with a shalom, and you would be met in your departure with a shalom. So shalom is a hello and a goodbye. In other words, you meet people with peace, you greet them with peace, and you say farewell, go in peace. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, soundness, fullness, 
It's not just a nice gesture when you greet someone or tell them goodbye. It's more than that. It's even more than we commonly think of when we think of peace in our own culture. Shalom is everything which makes for a person's highest good. Biblical peace, and this is important, biblical peace is not the freedom from all trouble. That's how we think of peace. The only way to have peace is if there's nothing bad or conflict going on around you. But biblical peace is not about that. Biblical peace is not about the absence of something. It's about the presence of something or someone. This is absolutely crucial because the great enemy to peace is sin. Sin destroys shalom. Sin fractures things. It fractures my relationship with others. It fractures my relationship with God. It even fractures things within myself. Sin causes me to be at war with other people, at war with God, at war within myself. Because within me there is this civil war, this great tug of war going on. You can read Romans 7 sometime. Paul describes it beautifully and I can relate to it fully. The very thing which I want to do is not the thing that I do. The very thing I don't want to do is the very thing I do do, right? Sin disrupts shalom. The Prince of Peace came into this world. He lived and he died to show us what sin does, what it does to other people, what it does to us, what it does to God. Christ died to overcome the world and to bring us peace. These things I have spoken to you, he says, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The Prince of Shalom brings us that wholeness, that fullness, that completeness that we can't find in the world around us and that seems so elusive. He restores brokenness. Peace comes through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. With restoration comes hope. The Israelites hoped in a Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies. We have that deliverer. He has come and he is coming back and our hope is in his return. Our hope is in resurrection because that will be the final death blow to death itself. Our enemy will finally be defeated and we will live in perfect harmony with the Heavenly Father for all eternity. But we cannot simply hold up or hunker down until Jesus returns living in fear. We've got to do something. What do we do? We live in peace and we promote peace. You know what that means? That means quit sharing junk on Facebook that doesn't promote peace. Quit it. You are people of peace. That doesn't mean that you're just nice to everybody. No, you promote peace. So far as possible, you live in peace among all men. You are a peacemaker. Do you know what that means? That means that you are actively seeking peace. You're trying to make peace wherever you go, and you don't do that behind a keyboard sharing this junk that often gets shared on Facebook, much of what is not even true, right? You are not somebody who is actively seeking peace when you're constantly warring with a brother or sister in Christ, when you're someone who is constantly bitter, someone who is harboring anger, you are not promoting the things that make for peace. Always, always, always promoting things that make for peace and never, never, never doing the opposite. There is no hall pass here. There's no getting off the hook. I see that sometimes on Facebook. Yeah, I know this has got some vulgarity, but it's worth saying. No, it's not. It's never worth saying. 
Remember who our king is. Remember who the prince is. And remember the one that we follow. Death has already been defeated. We know the final outcome. We're just waiting to see it play out, right? Until then, we let faith drive us, not fear, because we are victors. And so we live victoriously. And we don't get bought into all the junk going on in the world around us. We live above it because our hope is in something greater, right? 2016, district softball championships between Wiley and North McKinney. Not Wiley and Abilene, Wiley and the Metroplex. Wiley and North McKinney. Wiley is one out away from the district championship, but North McKinney has the bases loaded. There are two outs. McKinney North is up to bat. The batter hits a slow roller to the shortstop who picks it up, tosses it to second, and everyone starts celebrating. Gloves go flying in the air. Visors go flying in the air. What the Wiley team did not recognize was that the umpire didn't call the person out at second. The North McKinney runner was safe. And North McKinney kept running until finally that last run crossed the plate and North McKinney won the district championship. Wiley finally realized it, but it was too late as they watched that last runner cross the plate. How terrible would that be, thinking that you had won something, only to have it taken away from you? It'd be devastating, wouldn't it? You're celebrating. I think that describes the enemies of God, both in the Old Testament and even those today. Assyria and Babylon, they were celebrating. They thought they had won. They thought that they were victorious. They celebrated only to discover that they were the biggest losers. Our enemies, death and sin, are very similar. They may seem to be winning. On this side of the cross, it may seem like they are winning. But they are the biggest losers. It's not even a fair fight. In the end, we win. We claim the ultimate victory. We'll be the ones that are celebrating. And why? Because we are the Emmanuel. God with us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to come and to worship you. May we always celebrate the victory we have in you. In our worship, in our daily lives, may we live as victors. May we seek the things that make for peace. May we be a light in the dark world around us, and may that light never dim. May we live above the fray. May we seek to influence the world around us rather than buy what it is selling. God, help us to be a people of peace. Help us to know and be confident in the fact that we are the Emmanuel and that because God is with us, we win. We love you, God, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. If we can help you this morning, if we can pray with you, if you'd like to study the Bible with someone, Maybe you're ready to take the next step in faith. Maybe you're ready to, to be baptized. Whatever that need is, we want to help you. We are a people of hope, a family of hope. And if you don't have that hope, if you're not connected to that hope, don't leave here without finding it. Let us help you. Jim's going to lead us in a prayer. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.